0: hello and welcome i'm your host meli ramirez and you're listening to chingona's only club welcome to episode one of the show i'm excited to share this podcast with you all as it has been a labor of love for a long time and now it's finally coming to fruition but of course this has been many years in the making and i would not be here today without the chingona in my life so this episode is dedicated to my mom, and this is our story, or at least part of it. In a small Mexican pueblo called Tlatepeche in Mestitlán Hidalgo, a 16-year-old girl gets pregnant by her boyfriend, sending her parents and his family into complete outrage. Raised in a typical Mexican and Catholic household, what she has done is unforgivable and she is beaten and thrown out of her own home. She is forced to live with her boyfriend's family, who does not hide their disdain towards her. Due to the unwritten rules of classism and discrimination towards her indigenous features, she becomes a charity case. And even after she marries him, she is a charity case nonetheless. A step down, as some would say, from the fair-skinned, green-eyed family that he came from. Nine months later, on May 8th, a young girl is now a mother. My mother. One year later, at almost 18, she gives birth to my brother. Condemned to a life of suffering and handouts as the shame of both families, and with her new husband on his way to the United States in search of the American dream, she decides that she cannot stay behind and allow her children to grow up in a place and be treated with the same disdain that she has suffered. She knows that with only a sixth grade education, having her family disown her, and her husband's family never accepting her, her children have no chance at life, and therefore she has to make one for them. She traveled against her husband's wishes to the United States and without knowledge, crossing through the desert and a river with an 18 month old strapped to her back and a five month old baby in her arms. Miraculously, They all make it to Los Angeles in 1988 in search of my father so that they can raise their children together in the land of so-called dreams and opportunity. And it sounds perfect, but as life would have it, there was nothing but pain and anguish waiting for my mom when she arrived. I was about four years old when I remember what looked like my mother's lifeless body lying on the filthy floor of a single apartment, It was located at the corner of Garland Avenue and 7th Street. She wasn't moving, but I could hear her struggling to breathe as my father kicked her in the back. All I could do was hold my little brother, who was crying at the time. I needed him to stop making noise. My father didn't like my brother. He looked like my mom, and he projected his family's anger on him. I needed my brother to stop crying before my dad turned his rage on him. He was too small, just a tiny little boy who always was in his mother's arms. Somehow, my mom knew that he needed more protection than I did. I remember the blood coming out of my mom's nose, and my dad was not letting up this time. So I put my little brother in the closet, and I ran out of the apartment down the hallway that smelled of cigarettes and urine, and knocked on the first door that I recognized. When the woman who lived there and had occasionally babysat us opened the door, she already knew why I was there. Everyone knew. My mom's beatings were a regular thing, and the walls were thin, but people mind their own business in places like that. She asked me in Spanish, ¿Qué quieres? What do you want? Sounding harsher than she probably meant because she immediately asked me if my little brother was in the apartment. I said yes, and I asked to use her phone. She just moved aside, and I knew to call 911. At four years old, I didn't even know what to say to them. The moment they answered the phone, I started to cry, and all I could say was, Come help us, my mom is dying. I don't remember if the woman took the phone and gave them an address because I didn't know it. I just remember crying into the phone. The police arrived after what felt like an eternity and by then my mom was laying in the bottom bunk where she slept with my little brother every day. Unable to move, the floor was stained with her blood and my little brother was still hiding in the closet where I left him because it was the only other door in the apartment. The bathroom was actually shared by the entire floor, and it was located outside in the hallway. I was standing in the hallway when they took my dad away. He was crying, and he wouldn't look at me. And as much as I knew how much he hurt us, his tears broke my heart. His tears broke my heart my entire life, because I loved him. You see, I look like my dad. And he never raised his voice at me. He loved me. At least I thought he did. I could never reconcile how the father I loved so deeply could turn into a violent and unstable man in the blink of an eye. The police told my mom that they could not hold him long and to find another place to live for her own safety. As if she had anyone else in the world besides her babies. Could they not see the shit apartment we lived in? Not see that there was no other place. They left us there in that shattered apartment to pick up the pieces. I mean, I guess there was nothing else to be done. We all cried that night and the next morning bruised and hurt and tired. My mom went to work. She sold frutas and sometimes hot dogs in front of the LA County Courthouse. When she didn't have a babysitter, she would put my little brother in a crate on her fruit cart and she would walk to the courthouse selling fruit together. She would have me help her get people their sodas and my little brother's only job was to sit, color, and sleep. Occasionally, we would play together. This was our routine, but since we had a difficult night, to say the least, My mom asked the same neighbor that let us use her phone to watch us for the day. I still get angry sometimes because she left us there. Little did she know that my dad would come home, pick us up and take us with him. By the time she got home, we were gone, not just gone. We were on a plane ride back to Mexico, back to the Pueblo, you see. The easiest and most effective way to hurt a mother is to take her children. It'll break you. Physically and emotionally bring you to your knees. And my dad knew this. So he did just that. He took us from her to Mexico knowing she could never call the police. Not wanting to potentially hurt us. She just cried herself to sleep for days. My dad was not cut out for fatherhood. That was not his intent. He arrived in Mexico with two small children, got completely drunk for a few days with his brothers, and then he took us to my maternal grandparents' house and left us there with a small suitcase, no money, no explanation, and no remorse. He dumped us like an old belonging or toys you have no further use for, with people who never wanted us to exist in the first place. He returned to the U.S. without us, illegally, of course. And without any regret for what he had done, his only concerns were drinking, women, and drugs. Still, my mom was his property, and she felt bound to him. Regardless of his flaws, she had already brought shame to her family by getting pregnant out of wedlock. As a teenage mother, she couldn't also divorce him. And as much as my mom wanted to come home and get us in Mexico, she had to be logical. She didn't have enough money to bring us all back. And us crossing the desert unharmed the first time was a miracle. And she refused to take that risk again. She needed money for a coyote to smuggle us through a safe route. And so she spent two years working just for that. Taking the beatings, the humiliation the drug use, the drinking, and the verbal attacks from my dad until it was time to bring us back to her. I don't remember crying in those two years, at least not for my parents. I don't recall feeling like I missed them or having any feelings at all for that matter. I think I was too young. I do know that my grandparents grew to love us, though. They fed us and clothed us as best they could. I remember not having shoes sometimes and at certain points when I outgrew them and there was no money to buy them my grandma would call my mom and she would send money and we would buy shoes clothes and eventually when I started kindergarten school supplies I just existed there I have no memories of being happy or sad or angry my mother and father left us there at the mercy of strangers and I just had to be. I was sexually abused when I was five, then again when I was six. I was hit regularly by teachers because it was allowed and the adults around me when I made a mistake or didn't listen. I was punished when I misbehaved and I was shamed when I cried. This is what I remember. My little brother remembers nothing. Time just came and went for him. and In a way, I'm happy for him. I wish it was the same for me, but I was simply just not that fortunate. I learned to read and write in the first grade. I always loved going to school. My teacher always told me I was really bright and whether he meant it or not, it was nice to have an adult not want anything from you and still think you were a good kid. I cried when my mom showed up to bring me back to the U.S. Not because I was going to miss my life. I was just going to miss my teacher. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our introductory episode of Chingona's Only Club. I hope that you can see that this is a very personal project. And I'm so glad and thankful that I get to share it with you all. If you enjoyed the teaser episode, I hope that you subscribe to Chingonas Only Club so that you don't miss any episodes that follow. Also, don't forget to review the show. If you want to keep up with all the Chingonas Only Club latest information and find ways where you can assist the show, please follow us on Instagram at Chingonas Only Club. Thank you so much again for taking the time to listen to this podcast, and I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Adios.